Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money? A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start, Start saving, saving today. today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brands Park American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I remember laying in the bed, and he would be out in the living room, and I would just be plotting my escape over and over and over and how am I going to get past him because if he catches me he's going to kill me welcome to the first degree the true crime podcast that you might end up on my name is Jack Vanek I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter Alexis what do you think of my spray tan that I have on my face right now I was going to ask you because I saw you yesterday and you didn't look this tan and no you look sun-kissed it looks very natural actually thank you well it's like when they spray it and now it's sitting on my body for anybody that's wondering I do have a little bit of a Donald Trump orange going on right now Um, but once I wash it off it'll be nice and it'll be great nice and sun-kissed we have a really fucking crazy episode for you today that we can't wait for you to listen to so we're going to jump right in but I have to tell you the crazy days that we have for today. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, so today is August 17th. It is Baby Boomers Recognition Day. Mm. So go recognize your parents, give them a little pat on the back, you know. Boomers are smart. They've had a lot of life experience. They don't understand your experience, but they've had their own and they have some wisdom, if you believe it or not. Some of them have some wisdom. And you know, if you see a Karen in the store yelling at a manager, go and do something about it. It's also National Number Two Pencil Day, National Black Cat Appreciation Day. And the one that I hate the most, National I Love My Feet Day. No. None of these days are speaking to me personally. So we, you're right. We should just jump in. Yeah, let's just jump right in. (laughs) So that is enough of that. So let's turn on the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. Today's case is a story like none other we've told before, one that presents a poetic irony and demonstrates the existence of karmic retribution with soul-shaking evidence. I don't care if you're not religious. I don't care if you don't believe in karmic energy. This will rattle, horrify, bewilder, and ultimately inspire you, and hopefully lead to some hard truths about the pervasive violence of this country, the kind of violence that could be happening right under our noses. 
So today's case takes us back to the early 90s, and we're talking about a time period and not a specific date, but what was going on was the Waco siege, the Monica Lewinsky scandal, or how I like to call it, Bill Clinton preying on a really young woman, and also he was elected as the U.S. president. And as far as music, it was a good, good time. We're talking Nirvana, Hole, Aerosmith, and the Pixies. Ugh, the 90s. Nothing like it. Nothing like it. And this story starts somewhere at very familiar to us, Los Angeles. And Los Angeles is a city that needs no real introduction. You're familiar with aspects of the city's splendor. And this story will take us to some of the most beautiful neighborhoods in Los Angeles. We're talking Malibu, Santa Monica, and of course, the Pacific Palisades. So Jennifer, who's our first degree for today's harrowing story, had always called LA home. And it's where she would ultimately graduate from high school. Back then, Malibu didn't have a high school I went to a private all-girl Catholic high school and then senior year in in Woodland Hills. And then senior year, that's when my rebellion started and I wanted to go to Samuel High, Santa Monica High School. Once Jennifer graduated from high school, she was really living her best life. She was having fun and making plans for her future and things looked really bright. Right. And Jennifer wanted to pursue a career in nursing. And she'd wanted to be a nurse ever since she was a little girl. And she knew making her dreams come true would be a lot of work. But she knew she could do it. And she intended to have tons of fun along the way. Being from the area, Jennifer had a lot of friends who were always introducing her to new and interesting people. And one night, she crossed paths with someone who caught her attention. His name was Peter Paul. I had met him in the late 80s through mutual friends in Santa Monica, Malibu. We all kind of hung out, went to parties. I knew who he was, and it's funny because I knew he was no good the first couple times I met him, but then I met him a few years later, and I was just the right amount of vulnerable. <laughs> that, you know, he and he was just the right amount of charming. Jennifer had met Peter years prior, but she didn't really have any interest in him. He seemed like a player and a heartbreaker back then. But now that they were both a bit older and Jennifer happened to be going through her post-graduation rebellious period, he was a little bit of a bad boy. So she found herself pretty interested in him. We ended up on a double date one night in Santa Monica. And I think I was 19. He was a little, a couple years older, so he got me in all the fun spots in Santa Monica and, you know, got me the roses when the guy walked around and just charmed me. Peter and Jennifer hit it off on that double date, which led to a cascade of one-on-one encounters. And Peter, he laid it on thick and charmed the hell out of her. And any women listening, we all know this type of man. They're charming and somehow they know how to tick every single one of our boxes with everything they say. He was handsome. He was an aspiring actor, and he was one of those jack-of-all-trades types. Not to mention he was strong. He was an aspiring boxer, and he also had an elusive background, which added just a dash of mystery. And Peter knew what he wanted. He wanted Jennifer. He locked in on her and pulled out all of the stops. He facilitated fun dates for the two of them, and he kept things kind of light and fun and kept the good times rolling as Jennifer fell for him little by little. We had six months of bliss. We'd go to Rosarito. We, you know, we just had a blast. And I thought, well, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I was wrong about him. Right. And Peter won her over and she ultimately let her guard down and months passed and the relationship kept going strong. Nothing seemed amiss at all. 
Until one night when Peter and Jennifer were hanging out with a group of their friends. And that's when one of Peter's friends pulled her aside. And what he would say would stun her. At some point, somebody who we both knew and a close friend of his who'd known him through childhood years sat down next to me one night at a Mexican restaurant in Santa Monica and just sort of casually whispered, he's really dangerous. You've got to get out of this now. And, and he said, please don't ever tell him I told you this. Don't ever tell him. And I, you know, I, I trusted him, but I didn't, I, I hadn't, I just didn't know what to do. Jennifer was bewildered by this, especially because up to this point, she hadn't picked up on any major red flags with Peter. What exactly did this guy mean when he said that Peter was dangerous? And he told me that he was still close with Peter's ex-girlfriend. And she had finally gotten away and took off to, I think, Chicago or somewhere. I was desperate to talk to her, but she, she went into hiding pretty much. Peter's friend couldn't elaborate much since Peter was present that night. But the gist of what he was saying is that Peter's ex had tried to escape him and the relationship. And naturally, this was really hard for her to believe because she'd seen nothing but fun and good times with Peter so far. And Jennifer was 19 years old, so she didn't necessarily understand or have the life experience to digest exactly what she was being told that night. Plus, even if Peter made mistakes, it appeared that he had changed. There were warning signs, yeah, looking back. But there was so much good and it was so much fun and I was, I, you know, I'd been sheltered and, you know, I was literally rebelling. I, you know, he was fun. He was sexy. It was a blast. You know, we'd go here, we'd go there. We'd do all this fun stuff and rainy nights in Santa Monica and we'd go get a Starbucks and climb up on a rooftop and look at the sky and sip on our Starbucks and we'd have fun. We'd, you know, enjoy each other's company. So Jennifer had heard Peter's friend's concern, but she didn't let his warning disrupt the relationship. She was pretty in love with this guy, and she wasn't going to draw any conclusions until she saw warning signs for herself. Unfortunately, Peter's dark side would reveal itself sooner than later. It happened one night when Jennifer decided that she wanted to cook a romantic dinner for her boyfriend. Her mom was out of town and lent Jennifer her Malibu apartment. It would be the perfect setting for a cozy romantic night in. She was out of town for the weekend, so she let me stay there. And I thought I'd make a nice little romantic dinner. I remember what I was making. I was making linguine and clam sauce and a, a Caesar salad and, and I think maybe opened a bottle of wine or something. Jennifer was in her groove cooking in the kitchen, and thus far the night had gone perfectly. She and Peter had been really sweet with each other, and the night was unfolding exactly how she pictured it. And as she was working on dinner, Peter approached and got really close to her out of the blue. It was a small little apartment, but it was sweet, and, and he just walked over to me, and I just remember kind of smiling. There was no fight, no nothing. And the next thing I knew... I mean, I remember him grabbing me by the throat. And then all I remember after that was waking up in the hallway floor, which wasn't far from the kitchen, but he, you know, must have drugged me over there, laid me down. And I was just clasping at my throat and, and gasping for air and completely petrified and confused. Jennifer was horrified. She was confused. She was in shock. She probably couldn't even think straight, but of course she's asking herself, why in God's name would Peter do something like this to her completely unprovoked or at all, frankly? Nobody had ever 
done anything like that to me before. And then he just stood over me and he said, that this is what I'm capable of. So don't ever define me. And that was his famous tagline. Don't ever define me. Didn't know what to do with that. I mean, he literally, he could have killed me in that moment if he had just held on long enough to my throat. Peter did this methodically, almost like he'd done it before. She had no idea what to do. And suddenly the words of Peter's friend who had warned her about him came flooding into her thoughts. Jennifer remembers what a complete mindfuck all of this was. So after Jennifer gets up off the floor and catches her breath, what was she going to do now? And the answer is whatever she had to do to survive. I was just terrified. I, I finished the dinner, served the dinner, and just tried to please him, keep him content, keep him from hurting me again, because I'd never experienced anything like that. I didn't know what he would do to me if I got angry, which I was, but I was afraid to show it and push back, because if he did that to me and we were fine, what was he capable of if I showed him my fear or my anger and I didn't know what to do. I felt so stuck and terrified and who do I talk to? This initial act of violence against Jennifer would set the tone for the rest of their relationship. Only it would get worse, much worse. Violence soon became a commonplace occurrence. Once the first episode of abuse occurred, it just became more frequent after that. It was a constant. He broke ribs and he beat me so bad and I couldn't leave the apartment. And I didn't even live with him at the time, but I couldn't leave the apartment and he would take the phones away. He had a pager. We didn't have cell phones then. Everybody had pagers. I didn't have anything. He'd take it all away. And once Jennifer knew what Peter was capable of, she had no idea how to get out of this relationship unscathed. Even though he'd beaten her several times by this point, she mustered the strength to try to end the relationship. That was at his apartment in Santa Monica, and he was starting to get angry, and I was in a mood and just fed up, and I must have sassed him, or, you know, at least to him, he perceived it as, you know, I was angry. I remember I just looked at him and said, this is not okay. I don't want to do this anymore. I want out. And he came over and he smacked me really hard a few times across the face and the head. And he basically said, you just try. You just try. You'll learn. You'll learn. All Jennifer focused on was trying to escape this relationship, but Peter made it seemingly impossible. It was all about getting away for the next two years. How to get away, how to get away. My mom even flew me to Florida and he found me there. I mean, he found me everywhere. He always found me. He would just always go after loved ones, family, close friends. I mean, he was, he literally prayed, hunted, and stalked me for years. Peter somehow always found her. He could always get to her. And if he couldn't, he would punish those who were trying to help Jennifer get away from him, which made her a liability for friends and family to have around. It's devastating, and it was extremely effective. So would Jennifer ever get away from him? And if so, how? And even if she managed to escape, would Peter ever really let her go? 
To answer all of that and more, you know the drill. In the years that followed Jennifer's first violent encounter with Peter, all Jennifer tried to do was get out of this relationship. She would stay with different friends, different family members, and drive different cars. And nothing worked. I'd gone to the police. If they hadn't witnessed it firsthand, it was all hearsay. They'd give me a restraining order. That was pretty much useless because once he'd find me, what was that going to do? And whenever Jennifer's family and friends tried to help her, Peter would just shift his rage towards them, terrorizing them in various ways, including at their jobs. It's a clever and effective tactic he used to dissuade people from helping Jennifer escape him. He would show up at their work. He would show up at their homes. Like when I was in nursing school at that point, my parents were going through divorce and I was staying with my grandma in Canoga Park. I always had a bedroom there since I was a baby. And she had given me a car. So when I was hiding out from him, he would even go to her house and bash in the windows of her car and just terrorize her. And he went after Jennifer's mother, too, in chilling ways. My mom was a real estate agent in Malibu at the time, and he would follow her. She had a license plate that was, I think it said Malibu 9, and he would leave it on the you know, the message machine, Malibu 9, leaving this destination, now arriving at this destination, he would trail her. It was scary. It was scary. He wouldn't just call people and threaten them. He would actually show up and do things. But the the physical abuse was, you know, mainly me. He didn't go after any of them physically, but he would terrorize them plenty. Peter was a manipulative sociopath, and he knew that Jennifer wasn't. So he was sure that she would feel guilty for what Peter was putting her family and friends through. Jennifer knew that the only way to get the harassment of her loved ones to stop would be to go back and appease him. I would feel guilty because they didn't deserve it. You know, that's when I started calling him, in my head at least, my monster. You know, he's my monster. They don't deserve this. This is because of my choices. So I would, I would go back. To, to try to protect them with my my reasoning. So we need to flag something right here. So never say to anyone in an abusive relationship, why don't you just leave? What we're hearing today from Jennifer, these are the reasons people don't just leave. She tried. She tried. She's an empathetic person. These are not normal people who, quote, let people leave. Peter is not normal. No. Peter is bold and brazen with the violence against Jennifer. And he didn't even care who seemed to know about his abusive tendencies or who witnessed it. He did not care. He would just get angry and physical. I mean, we'd be driving in the car. He'd be driving and I'd be in the passenger seat. If I looked to the right and there happened to be a guy in the car next to us that happened to look at me at the same time, next thing I knew, he would grab me from behind my head and slam my face into the dashboard. And You know, I would see people's faces and they were just shocked and perplexed. And sometimes they'd say something, hey, what what are you doing? But he would just either park the car and get out and go after him and then they'd drive away. Or people mostly just looked shocked and horrified and drove away. And yeah, he was a ticking time bomb. 
Jennifer was a prisoner to this relationship. She was depressed. She was emotionally beaten down. And she was completely isolated from anyone who could help her. The violence became so routine that she was resigned to the fact that Peter would probably eventually kill her one day. I would just lay there all bruised and it hurt to breathe. One time he took me to the hospital. I think they knew what was going on, but they didn't offer me any help. Unless I admitted it, they couldn't help, right? And I was scared to admit it. So I went home with him and I, nobody heard from me for days. I lost my job at the time. I remember laying in the bed and he would be out in the living room and I would just be plotting my escape over and over and over. And how am I going to get past him? Because if he catches me, he's going to kill me. And some nights I did get out and I got away for the night and ran across the street to the neighbor, somebody's place. But you know, he'd always get me back. There were people who wanted to help Jennifer, but she couldn't let them because she knew Peter would go after them. And she didn't think that anybody deserved that. A lot of people loved her, but they felt completely hopeless to help her. I alienated a lot of people because they just couldn't continue to watch me put myself through this situation. They were scared for me, frustrated with me, angry at me, ashamed of me, all those feelings, all those emotions. So I pretty much alienated everyone every time I ended up back with him. Nobody really understood. And I get that. I get that today, loud and clear. I couldn't expect them to continue to stand by and go through it. It was hell. It was torture. And every time Jennifer tried to leave, Peter beat her down physically and mentally. But she was willful, and she didn't stop continuing to try. While I was in nursing school, I got away and had a a friend in Santa Monica that hid me out. Peter found me. He knocked on the door. I, you know, poked my head, the chain. And I, anyways, I ended up letting him in. I was terrified, but I was still too terrified to resist. And he came in and he did what he did. I didn't resist. He got up and he said, now you're going to be pregnant. And now you won't be able to leave me. And I'm going to be watching you. And he was right. And it sounds crazy, but he really had been monitoring my, my menstrual cycle and when I would be fertile. I didn't know this. This was a nightmare. Peter is unhinged. He was also cunning and calculating. And apparently he'd actually been tracking her cycles because Jennifer learned that she was in fact pregnant. Now what was she going to do? It was at one time and I got pregnant. But I didn't go back to him when I found out I was pregnant. I told you I was staying with my grandma, and she found out. And she said, you know, you're having Rosemary's baby. That's the devil's child. You're not welcome in this home. She took the keys to the car she was letting me use to go to nursing school. She literally told me, go in my room and pack a bag. I didn't think she'd really do it. She put me out the front door, closed and locked, took my keys, closed and locked the door. And I had nowhere to go. I think that 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 broke my heart, devastated me. And that cost our relationship. The fact that she put me out. I get 
where she was coming from. It was a tough love moment. She was worried about me, but I needed her then more than ever. My mom was like, nope, can't come here. Don't know what you're going to do. Pretty much my whole family, everyone, was in agreement. Jennifer was heartbroken. I don't think they could have done anything. That's when I realized it was up to me, but it took me getting pregnant to find that strength. And I just remember just understanding, but being devastated because I lost a couple of really good girlfriends. My family was just, you know, in shock and horror. And there was so much shame, so much shame, so much shame that came with it. And you just get so beat down physically and emotionally that you stop caring about yourself and you just feel stuck. And you, for me, that's what it was. You just don't see a way out. Jennifer was more alone and more in danger than she had ever been, but she kept going. What other choice did she have? I just went back to the friends in Santa Monica, got rides, carried on, would call my mom after I had the ultrasound. Mom, it's going to be a boy. She got mad, hung up on me. I don't want to know. I don't want any part of this. And that's when I realized I, I have to stand up to this monster. Jennifer knew she had to do something extreme to get away from Peter. She was fighting for more than just her life now. I have to get away. I cannot bring my child into this world with this man around. I can't, I can't let him be around this baby. That's when my mom let me stay with her for, a, a, I don't know, a couple of nights. Even though Jennifer was terrified, she concocted a plan. And it was a bold one. And to put this plan in motion, she would need to see Peter. It was right before Thanksgiving. And I made the, he, you know, let me, you know, let's get together. Let's have dinner. Let's go to a movie. Third Street Promenade. You love to go there. And I agreed, but I knew that it wasn't going to be that. I knew it was not going to be that. But I had to stand up to him once and for all. And all I had was my pepper spray. Jennifer took the bus to the intersection where Sunset meets the Pacific Coast Highway on the border of the Pacific Palisades and Malibu. I wasn't a girl that took the bus, but I got off right there in front of Gladstone and walked across PCH to, I think it's a Chevron or a Mobile. It's the one right across from Gladstone's. Jennifer waited at this gas station for Peter to pick her up. She was flooded with feelings and fears. Feelings of adrenaline, anxiety, you name it, she felt it. She knew what she was about to do. This was it. This was all or nothing, life or death. She would either be killed by Peter or she would escape him for real this time. I took French in high school, and I was so excited that we were going to France for Jack's wedding so I could practice my French, and it was only when I got there I realized just how rusty I'd gotten, and I wanted to communicate in French with the locals there so badly. If you can relate to this experience, then Rosetta Stone is right for you. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You can choose from one of 25 languages like Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. 
Fast-track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a quick and natural way. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's True Accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Rosetta Stone is so convenient, and it can be used on your desktop computer or as an app, with audio companion and ability to download lessons offline. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. So if you're a super busy person and you don't have time to go to the gym, or maybe you just don't even want to go to the gym and work out in front of a bunch of different people, you need to check out the Allo Moves app. I'm obsessed with this app. So it makes it easy to keep your wellness routine on track because they have everything in one place. There's yoga, there's Pilates, fitness classes, mindfulness, self-care tips, healthy recipes, and so much more. So either you're a beginner or you're an advanced person, Allo Moves has the flow or class that will fit your schedule. Their classes range from five minutes to an hour, depending on what you're feeling that day. So even if you only have five minutes, you can just get some movement in. I used Allo Moves all during the pandemic. It was amazing. Like I was on my yoga journey and I was obsessed with it. So you can find stress relief with meditations, affirmations, face yoga, gua sha, dry brushing, and journaling for those quiet moments, even if you don't really want to get a workout on. And when it comes to sleep, it's just important as fitness and nutrition, and they've got you covered with Allo Moves. So unlock your personal wellness routine with Allo Moves. Go to Allo Moves com and use code first for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's allomoves.com, code first, A-L-O-M-O-V-E-S.com, code first. Okay, so listen, we are busy ladies over here on The First Degree, and when I have a moment of free time, I don't want to spend it grocery shopping. I want to spend it rotting on the couch and watching reality TV, and that is why I love Thrive Market. So Thrive Market is a go-to for all of my grocery and household essentials, and the convenience of getting everything online then quickly shipped to my doorstop is such a huge time saver. So Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They actually restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So you can go on their website and use their filters to suit any of your lifestyle needs. If you're allergic to a certain ingredient, if you just don't want to have it in your life, that's why Thrive Market is so awesome. So whether you're looking for organic snacks for your kids or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free pantry essentials, you can curate your own shopping experience with just a few clicks. I love this so much because I don't want to read every ingredient when I go to the grocery store. It's so easy to do it online, honestly, when I'm rotting on the couch. So join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com first for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com first. Thrivemarket.com first. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. No prepping, no cooking, or cleanup needed. There's over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. And there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. 
Get started today and get after your goals. Plus, Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. For me, I was really struggling to get enough protein. I always do. But Factor's meals are protein-packed, and they're so good. And it's so easy when I'm slammed busy working in the middle of the day to just have lunch right there, not needing to do anything, except heat it up. Head to factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 and use code DEGREE50 to get 50% off. That's code DEGREE50 at factormeals.com slash firstdegree50 to get 50% off. When she talked to Peter and arranged to see him, Peter had said they'd go to dinner and to a movie, but she knew that he was full of shit. Peter was filled with rage at this point over the fact that Jennifer had successfully evaded him since she found out she was pregnant. She had defied him. He was either going to kill us or it was going to take me to stand up to him once and for all. But I knew we weren't going to dinner and I knew we weren't going to a movie and I knew we weren't going to talk and nothing was going to get resolved. It was a very, very poignant moment because I just had to be so brave. And I remember before I got off the bus cocking the pepper spray, putting it back in my pocket and hoping he wouldn't search me and find it. Then Peter, this handsome, evil, and abusive sociopath pulled up in his car. Jennifer opened the door and got in, knowing that there was a possibility that this might be the last car ride of her life. I got in the car and off we went up sunset when he was driving me up into the hills in the Palisades and said, you defied me for the last time. The defiance, that was a big thing for him. A switch had flipped for Jennifer. She was done, and Peter could sense it. This part I remember really well. He was an aspiring boxer, so he was a very strong guy. And growing up, he had motorcycles, dirt bikes, and he knew these all the canyons around here. He would just go disappear with his dirt bikes and ride and ride. So back then, the Palisades Highlands were under construction. They were building out. And he knew the area. He pulled out of the gas station, started up Sunset, turned left to go up to the Palisades Highlands. But he pulled out one of his guns, a 9mm. It wasn't the first time he'd put a gun to my head, a loaded gun. And he said, you defied me for the last time. Now you're going to die. This was Jennifer's worst case scenario realized. I have a grave dug and you're done. Peter was driving Jennifer to the place where he intended to kill her and bury her in the hills. Jennifer sat still as Peter drove her towards her death. She knew that she had to act if she was ever going to make it out of this alive. He was driving up, and I reached in my pocket, my right-hand jacket pocket, checked on my pepper spray, and just knew it's now or never. It's now or never. And I looked at him and I said, my son will never know the fear that I've known from you. And I pulled out the pepper spray and I sprayed all 10 sprays right into his face, like directly into his face. Jennifer just kept on spraying pepper spray into his eyes as Peter drove up the winding hills of L.A. That was supposed to incapacitate him, but it didn't. He kept driving. I mean, he was you know, rubbing at his eyes. He dropped the gun, but he was still driving. So I tried to open the car door. He'd slowed down, but he was still, I don't even know how fast he was going at that point. 
And I just knew you got to, it's time, escape, escape. And the door was jammed. So I climbed out of the window and I was holding on to the door just with my arms on the inside. And he had grabbed a hold of my jacket and my sweater because it was, you know, mid, late November. It was cold. And he was trying to pull me back in. And I just let go, threw myself back because all I could think was my baby, my baby, my baby. And I didn't realize that when I landed, I was in nothing but a pair of pants and a bra. And I was completely concussed and I was covered in road rash. Jennifer was so desperate to escape him that she flung herself from Peter's moving car as his eyes burned. He was more filled with rage than ever before. Peter already wanted to take Jennifer's life, so it's safe to say that he really, really wanted to now. But I remember hearing the tire screech. And I thought, I have, I have to run. I have to run. He's going to get me and this is going to be it. He's going to kill us. And I know it sounds bizarre, but I felt something, someone just lift me up and push me in a direction. I still don't know where, what street I was on, where I was. I wish I could find these people. But I not only ran and I couldn't see anything except stars. I just remember it was black and there were little specks of stars in my vision. I not only ran into these people's home, I didn't go to the front door. They were congregated around back in their kitchen. And I didn't knock, I just ran in. And I said, I need help, I need help, he's gonna kill me. Without asking permission or without explaining, Jennifer bolted into this open house and there was a family that had kids that were living in this house. The mom closed the door and locked it with Jennifer inside. I kept running to the farthest point of the house. I ran up the stairs all the way to the end of the hall, threw myself down on this bed at the farthest bedroom. And one of their sons was home from college studying and I can't even imagine what that was like for him. But I just laid down on his bed and said, please make sure my baby's okay. Make sure my baby's okay. And he was just dumbstruck. It's probably no surprise that Peter had followed Jennifer to the home. He walked up to the locked door, which had a window on it. The woman said... As soon as she closed and locked the door behind me, he was standing right there tapping the gun on the window, telling her to let me know he wasn't done with me and he was going to get me. Honestly, when I hear that he was tapping the gun on the window, like taunting this homeowner who's locked Jennifer inside, like this is the kind of evil, psychotic shit that Jennifer is dealing with. So again, this is going to be the theme of this episode, the why don't you just leave shit has got to stop. Like, this is domestic violence that is inescapable. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, number one, that I'm sure everybody listening to this right now can completely envision what that looks like. It's a scene out of a fucking movie. It's not a scene that should happen in real life. Like, it is absolutely terrifying. Now he's putting this entire stranger's family in danger as well as Jennifer. Like, it is the stuff from nightmares. And like you said, it's like she literally can't get away from him. He's following her around. He's terrorizing everybody in her life. Like, there is the nobody's helping her. There is no escape for her. So it's it's just so, so scary. Right. And as a reminder to everyone, she had tried to go to the police. 
and nobody's helping her. And this is the early 90s, though, and they're like, if we didn't see it, how do we prove it? Whatever. They weren't helpful before. And again, they said they needed to witness these events themselves. But this time was different because Peter had legit tried to kill her. And these people in this home had witnessed it. The woman who lived in this house that Jennifer escaped to witnessed Peter threatening her through the glass. Plus, you know, when Peter said he dug a grave for Jennifer, well, it turns out he wasn't bluffing. Police later verified that they did find an area that looked like it was, a, you know, meant to be a grave. Peter fully intended on killing Jennifer. And this time there was proof and there was evidence and there was witness statements. And finally, the police would take this seriously. Of course, they called 911 and police and paramedics came. He got away. And that's when a detective was assigned to my case. That's when the help arrived. But it wasn't, you know, he wasn't done. He wasn't done terrorizing me. Peter had fled the scene, which meant that Jennifer still wasn't safe, at least not yet. You know, I went to the hospital. They had to scrub the road rash out of my back and my feet. And they kept telling my mom she's going to lose the baby. She's not coping. I could hear them on the other side of the curtain. But Jennifer was defiant. She was committed to surviving. Her baby was the only reason she'd mustered the courage to do this at all. I said, I'm not going to lose the baby. And they talked about putting me in the psych ward for a couple days because I wasn't coping well and I was surely going to lose the baby. But Jennifer didn't lose the baby. And eventually she was well enough to get discharged from the hospital. Peter, who had still not been apprehended for trying to kill Jennifer, continued to evade capture by the LAPD. And while Peter roaming free was unnerving, Jennifer could tell that things were different this time. Her plan, as risky and as dangerous as it was, had worked. Detective Gary Ryan, he saved our lives. He took me under his wing and he started looking out for us. Peter was now a wanted man. They considered my unborn baby a viable fetus. So it was kidnapping on two accounts and attempted murders on two accounts. So four felony charges. He was a wanted man for four felony charges. And even though Peter knew he was wanted by the police, he reverted back to his same abusive and terroristic tactics. He wasn't going to let Jennifer get away with what she did. So he went after her mom, just like he'd done before. And then Peter was back to stalking my mom, following her, leaving messages on the voicemail, her license plate here, there. So they tapped the phones. This time, the police were pulling out all of the stops. Her mother's phones were tapped, and they'd hoped that they could get tipped off about where he was in that way, especially if he was following her mother's car and stalking her. Then, Peter escalated. He talked somebody into jumping my mom's patio fence with him one night, dressed all in black with ski masks, guns, And my mom was in her room, and they were banging on the the sliders trying to get in with guns. The realization that there are people out there in the world like Peter is, is terrifying. You know, it really makes your blood run cold. And now this guy's trying to break into her mother's apartment armed with weapons. This guy is just out for blood. So, of course, you know, lights go on. We call the police. They get away. Now we have full surveillance put on her apartment. 
Jennifer continued to remain hidden from Peter. After all, her life depended on it. Until one day, she got the news that she'd been waiting to hear for more than two years. It took until New Year's Eve. They finally found him down at Third Street Promenade, and it was through a mutual friend who was working as a bouncer and spotted him and went back and quickly drew a little sketch with the details, what he's wearing, hair color, this, that, this one guy who coordinated it. They located him, they honed in on him, called the police, and they arrested him. And even once they handcuffed him, he took off. (laughs) But they got him. They got him. They got him. They finally got him. And there probably isn't a word to express Jennifer's relief at hearing this news. She was free. Finally. And she remembers how that felt. Like a breath of fresh air. A huge relief. Like we were safe. Finally safe. Peter was in custody facing very serious charges. Jennifer knew that she'd have to come face to face with him again at some point through the court proceedings. But for the first time since she started dating Peter, she felt safe. And she felt like she could breathe. And she could finally focus on what was important preparing to be the best mother that she could to her baby. And Jennifer had to build her life from scratch. While she somehow, against all odds, managed to graduate from nursing school amidst the abuse and terror of Peter. That is so fucking impressive. Inspiring. It is so inspiring. She still had to take her board exams, and she didn't have a super reliable means to support herself yet, so she moved into a tiny little apartment on the wrong side of town, which was all she could afford at the time. And she got a job that helped her get by in the meantime. And remember, at this point, Peter had been arrested and charged with two counts of kidnapping and two counts of attempted murder. But he'd not yet been convicted on those charges. The upcoming trial became a looming presence until finally it was the day. The detective stood by my side and he picked me up to take me to the trial. The trial would be jarring for obvious reasons and also for reasons that she didn't expect. So many people had heard about what happened, all these mutual acquaintances from, you know, Malibu, Santa Monica, whatever. His side of the courtroom was literally packed, every seat taken. It was like shocking to me. And my side, empty and like crickets. There were the people that knew him, but they just, they were too afraid to stand up to him. So they figured it was safe to stay on his side of the courtroom. If they sat on my side and once he got out, they were going to have to answer for that. And he was a ticking time bomb. Everybody knew what he was capable of, but nobody wanted to have to experience that. So just when I thought I couldn't get more angry or shocked by the details of this story, I'm proven wrong. The support Peter was shown is so disgusting and disheartening and really demonstrates the hopelessness of how women feel when they're trying to escape a murderous abuser like Peter. You know, again, like people are so scared of him that they're afraid to speak out against him, even as he's sitting in shackles in a courtroom. Yeah. Because if he gets out, like, hey, you didn't support me. This guy dug her grave for Christ's sake. And these are friends still supporting him. It's enraging. And I can't imagine how Jennifer felt that day where she's pregnant with this guy's baby. This guy tried to kill her, has terrorized her for years. And she's seeing their mutual friends sitting on his side of the court as she's having to muster the strength to do this. It's unacceptable, and it's devastating to just imagine it. With Detective Gary Ryan by her side, Jennifer braced herself as Peter was walked into the courtroom. When they brought him in, 
they literally sat him down in a chair, shackled, hands and feet shackled in his orange jumpsuit right next to me, right next to me. I mean, maybe there were a couple feet between us, but it was right next to me. It honestly just gets worse and worse, and it shows you how the system at the time felt about domestic violence. To put him next to her is I cannot believe repuls- that. repugnant. Like, I really can't stomach that. And at this point, I was really pregnant, and I had to get up and testify. And I remember the detective prepping me because he said, he's going to be looking at you, and you're going to want a cave, but you have to tell the truth. It was hard. He was glaring at me. It was really intimidating, though, especially because everyone was on his side of the courtroom. So I remember having this self-doubt, like, well, maybe it was my fault. Maybe it's all me. And they're all here for him because this is my fault that he did this to me. But that was just still the victim's state of mind. Even though so many friends had disappointed her by supporting Peter in court, and even though the man who attempted to murder her while she was pregnant was glaring at her threateningly, and even though the odds had been stacked against her time after time, Jennifer got through it. And the evidence against him was overwhelming. And the jurors believed everything that Jennifer told them. For his crimes, he was sentenced to 15 years before being carted off to jail to begin serving his time. Jennifer's story is one of the most harrowing, courageous, and inspiring we've ever told. She'd been beaten countless times, lost relationships with people she loved. She'd been sexually assaulted. She'd been ejected from a car as she was driven to a grave that Peter had dug to bury her in. She was shown sparse support in court, and she still prevailed. And now, finally, finally, Peter Paul was going to prison. And I know you probably think that that's the end of this story, but that would make you wrong because the depths of depravity that lived in Peter Paul were unparalleled and unimaginable. Jennifer would give birth to a baby boy, and her son would add even more fuel to Peter's drive to harm men. Brace yourself for next week, folks, because Peter's harassment of Jennifer persisted through his jail sentence and following his release. Paul's evil, diabolical behavior continued, and to no surprise, culminated in murder. Just not the kind of murder you're probably thinking. And we know you have questions and we totally get it. You'll get all of your questions answered on next week's episode. Until then, take domestic violence seriously. Support your friends in need and never, ever fucking say to somebody, why don't you just leave? Well, until next week, thank you, Jennifer, so much for being so courageous and vulnerable and sharing your story. She's going to be with us next week as well. If you're listening out there and you have a story to tell, you can email us. Hello at the first degree podcast.com. Follow us on Instagram. Join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time and join our Patreon. We have bonus content for you every single Tuesday and check back in the feed tomorrow because we'll have a brand new episode of Killing Time. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close, but not that close. This episode was researched and written by me. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree and our awesome producer, Caitlin Cleveland. Sources for this episode include court documents in the LA Times. And as always, our First Degree guest is always our largest source.